Uh, If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the most uh, famous and well-known passages in Ephesians, and it is profound in its implications. Uh, There is so much here we could talk about that we had to cut it down to just enough to do uh, in a sermon, an appropriate length uh, of sermon time. Uh, So uh, we're going to have to just hit some highlights, but there is just a lot here. Uh, Christians, this passage is a summary of the gospel. Um, Listen and be amazed. This is Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 10, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word for us, his people, today. Let's pray and ask for his help. To understand it. Father, we thank you for this beautiful summary of what you have done for us in Jesus. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, show us our sin, but more importantly, show us your grace for us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite books that I read in seminary was by a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga Jr., uh, who we affectionately called Corn Plant. Uh, But his book is a book on sin. The book is called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and the book opens uh, with this sentence. He says, as a child growing up in the 50s, Among Western Michigan Calvinists, I think I heard as many sermons about sin as I heard about grace. The assumption in those days seemed to be that you couldn't understand either without understanding both. Our passage today is about sin and it's about grace. 
And we're going to see the same thing that Cornelius planting a junior saw as he was growing up, and that is that we can't understand either sin or grace without understanding both of them together. And the passage opens this morning by talking to us about sin, and it shows us actually three things about the nature of sin. And the first thing we see in Ephesians 2 is that sin is disobedience. Sin is disobedience against a holy God. You see, our God made us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's the first question and answer in our Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the documents that summarizes what we believe about the scriptures. God made us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And when we walk in sin, we are rejecting the very purpose for which we were made. We go our own way. This is why Paul says in verse Two, that when we walk in sin, we are following the same path as the sons of disobedience, those who are in open rebellion against God, who are going their own way. And it's hard for us because we live in a culture that loves the idea of going our own way. We celebrate the rebel. We celebrate the person who forges his or her own path through life. But friends, when we rebel against God, when we rebel against our creator, when we walk our own way, contrary to the way he would have us walk, we are rebelling against the one in whom all things hold together. We are rebelling against the one in whom every molecule of the universe holds together. This is as irrational and nonsensical as deciding we are going to rebel against oxygen or rebel against water. We are rebelling against the very thing that is sustaining us. And that's why one of the things we're going to see as we think more about sin is that all sin leads to destruction and to death. Sin never leads to flourishing. Sin never leads to happiness. Sin only brings destruction and death. You see, friends, sinning is not just messing up. Disobeying God isn't just accidentally violating some arbitrary rule that God has laid down for us. Sin doesn't just mean that we mess up. Sin means that we mess things We don't just make mistakes. We hurt people. We hurt things. We cause pain and hardship and difficulty in the world because we are disobedient and because we are sinful. Friends, because of our sin, we make the world worse. This is why God hates sin. God hates sin because it destroys the creation that he made and sustains and loves. It violates this world that he created to perfectly reflect his character and his glory. 
Sin violates that, and so God hates it, which is why in verse 3 he says that those who walk in sin are ultimately children of wrath. Because God hates what sin has done to his world. He hates what sin has done to those who bear his image. But the passage continues. Sin is not just disobedience. It's not just going our own way. What we find is that sin never leads to freedom either. Sin ultimately leads to being enslaved. And that's why Paul talks about sin so harshly in verses 2 and 3. He says that when we sin, we are following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. When we are sinning, we are throwing our lot in with the one who would ultimately wish to see us destroyed and enslaved. In verse 3, Paul says, uh, When we lived among the sons of disobedience, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. As one of our great local theologians, Ardeen Nickish, put it on Tuesday, We are slopping around in the flesh. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. We live in a culture that, when it uses the word sin, is often treating it like it's an indulgence. Like this particularly decadent chocolate is sinfully good. But it's important for us to realize that sin is not some naughty fun that God has arbitrarily forbidden. What sin does is it twists our hearts. It twists our desires. It distorts what we want. Early Christians talked about sin as curving us in on ourselves. We were made to love others. We were made to move into the world in pursuit of the good of all and And for the glory of God. But what sin has done is it has made us addicted to ourselves. It has made us selfish. And the picture you have even here in Ephesians 2 is that sin has made us a slave to our appetites. And that might look like sensuality. When we think about the passions of the flesh, we tend to think about uh, overt outward sins of overconsumption of Uh, sex or food or drink but this slave to being a slave to an appetite is not just um, a, a physical thing he talks about also the desires of our minds which means there are more respectable varieties of sin to which we can be enslaved We can be enslaved to a desire to be seen as competent in our work. And we might labor day and night seeking to make and create an identity for ourselves that is really feeding on the approval and the admiration of others. We might instead be addicted to wealth. And we might say that what we really care about is responsibility. But what we've actually done is said, greed is ultimately what we are about. And so we can pursue wealth and we can look really successful and we can even be generous. But ultimately, money 
is the thing that is driving us. That is a passion of the flesh, a desire of the body and the mind. Friends, there are all sorts of varieties of sin. And all of them are enslaving. All of them distort our hearts. All of them twist our desires. Which is why the third thing that this passage shows us about sin is that it leads to death. Sin always leads to death. You see it there in verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Life under sin is no life at all. We are enslaved to our broken desires. We are curved in on ourselves. And when the scripture tells us we are dead, it doesn't mean we are dead physically. It means we are dead spiritually, which means we are unable to do and to love what is right. Apart from Christ, we are unable to love or choose the good. Because we are ultimately separated from and rebelling against the ultimate source of goodness, which is God himself. And so if you were to boil all of this down, thinking about sin as disobedience, thinking about sin as something that enslaves us, thinking about sin as something that leads to death, I think perhaps one of the most profound images we have for what sin is, is that sin is an addiction to a thing that will kill us. That's what sin is. Sin is an addiction to something that will kill us. And because of this, sin is just fundamentally irrational. Just like any addiction is, people turn to the same thing over and over again, thinking and hoping that it will bring life, but it never does. It promises more and more and delivers less and less, all the while asking more and more of you. Ultimately, sin is addiction to something that will kill us. It will take everything from us. A pastor that I know told a story one time about a woman in his church who was addicted to pain medication. Uh, And what they found over time was that uh, people would invite her over for dinner and she would go into their bathrooms and and raid their medicine cabinets um, looking for old or expired pain medication. And she had a real and serious problem. And one day, um, she shot herself in the chest. But she didn't die. In fact, she called 911 herself. And when the paramedics got to the scene, they found something that was unexpected. They found anatomy books out on the kitchen table. And they found the woman lying in the backyard on a mattress. And as they talked with her, as they took her into the hospital, they found out what had actually happened. Is that this woman had studied anatomy books to figure out where she could shoot herself so as to injure herself but not to die. So that she could get pain medication. Friends, that's what sin is like. Sin is irrational. It is enslaving. It is addiction. 
And when we are in sin, apart from God's grace, we are addicted to death. We are without hope in desperate need of rescue. Which is why it's good that Ephesians 2 does not end with verse 3. It says in verse 4, But, but God. This tells us just initially, sin does not get the final word. Grace is the thing that we need. And there is so much in the second two-thirds of this passage, we could spend hours and hours and hours reflecting on it. So I am briefly going to give you four things this passage tells us about grace in contrast to sin. The first thing it shows us is that part of what grace means is that we are loved. We are loved. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. This passage tells us that God loves us even in the midst of our sin. Even in the midst of our rebellion against him. God loved us. He loved us. And I think we could underline this a hundred times and put it in bold print if only because sometimes Christians talk like the only reason God loves us is because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But that is not what the Bible says. The cross is the result of God's love for us, not the cause of his love for us. God loves us, his people. And one of the things that does for us is this satisfies this deep human longing we have. Because we all want to be fully known and fully loved. But in this world where sin still reigns, we often fear that if we were fully known, we would actually be rejected. And this is why we spend so much time curating an image of ourselves and projecting this version of ourselves that we want people to think we are and to even pretend like we're not ever actually in need of grace. But what the gospel tells us is that in Jesus, we are fully known. God knows you down to your molecules. Nothing you have done or said or thought has escaped his perception. He knows all of the worst things that you've thought. He knows all of the worst things that you've done, the things that you are scared to even think about that you've done, the things that make you feel most ashamed. God knows fully, and yet he loves. He knows you fully, and he loves you fully, even at your most unlovable. That's grace. The second thing we see about grace is that grace brings us to life. Grace makes us alive. You see it there in verse 5. Together with Christ, we are made alive. And throughout all of Paul's letters, you see this phrase repeated again and again and again. And we haven't really had time to spend a lot of uh, space discussing this. 
But you see this phrase and it is in Christ or with Christ or in Jesus. And you see this over and over again in Paul's letters. And theologians talk about this phrase as indicating this beautiful doctrine called union with Christ. And what union with Christ means is that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and his life and death and resurrection. And for our purposes here in this passage, what that means is Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. Christ went from dead to alive, and what the Spirit does is bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life, and one day from physical death to physical life. God brings, or breathes rather, life into our dead hearts. And so if sin enslaved us, if sin made us addicted to ourselves and curved in on ourselves, one of the things that the gospel does, one of the things that God's grace does is it takes our twisted hearts and it bends them straight. It fixes our broken want to so that we begin to love what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. But friends, there's even more. That grace does for us. Because the third thing grace does for us that we see in this passage is it honors us. We are honored by grace. Verse 6 shows us this. It says, we have been raised up with him. And God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Friends, we are seated in the heavenly places. And notice that's a past tense. There is a sense in which we are as seated in the heavenly places this morning as we will ever be in eternity. Because what is true of Jesus is true of us. And what this means is that we are not just accepted by God. It's not like God is kind of holding his nose and sort of saying, like, you guys are okay, I guess. God welcomes us into his presence. And God gives us a seat of honor at the table. Because Jesus has the seat of honor. What is true of him is true of us. And that's what makes verse 7 so beautiful. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. God does all of this so that for eternity he can show us his kindness. Isn't that beautiful? God saves us. He he loves us. He makes us alive. And then he welcomes us into his presence so that for eternity we can enjoy him and his blessings and his gifts. I heard an amazing story this week about Queen Elizabeth. Uh, every time the English House of Lords uh, convenes, uh, there's a grand ceremony where the queen would uh, kind of march down this uh, formal hallway and there would be guards flanking her and they would actually strike their swords on the stone walls and sparks would fly. And she would go into the House of Lords and be seated at her seat of honor. And 
uh, basically exhort the, the House of Lords, the, the Parliament, however, I'm not sure how British government works. Y'all, y'all stay with me. Exhort the House of Lords to enact the will of the people, um, to, to govern justly and rightly in her name and her stead. As the queen got older, uh, she was no longer able to walk up the grand staircase uh, to this hallway. And so they kind of made some accommodations for her, and one of them was they used an elevator to get her up to that hallway. And the first time they were doing this, uh, she got in the elevator, and the guy who was operating the elevator hit the wrong button. And instead of going up to the floor of the grand hallway with Parliament, he went down to the maintenance floor. And uh, the door opens, uh, and this woman named Alice, uh, who was a maintenance worker there in the the House of Parliament, uh, didn't even look up. She just kind of got on pushing her cart and turned around and, you know, pins the Queen of England to the back wall of this elevator. Well, she realizes she kind of hit somebody, and the door's closed, and she turns around and realizes who it is. And she says a word that you wouldn't normally say in the presence of the Queen of England. And everyone kind of freezes. Wondering what to do. How's the queen going to react? And the queen laughs. She chuckles. And instead of going back down to the maintenance floor, the queen insisted that Alice accompany her to the grand hallway and walk with her down the hallway. More than that, once a year from then on, the queen invited Alice to have high tea at the palace with her. She was given a seat of honor in the queen's presence. Friends, that's a picture of what God has done for us here. Like Alice, you know, we bring nothing to the table. In fact, we bring less than nothing to the table. Because bringing nothing would be better than bringing the sin that we actually bring. We bring less than nothing to the table. God does everything, and then God rejoices to honor us and to welcome us into his presence. God delights to show us his kindness, just like Queen Elizabeth did in this particular story. Unless we think we have contributed anything to our salvation, Paul ends this passage in Ephesians 2 by just driving home in verses 8 to 10. That we are saved only by grace. We are saved only by grace and we are saved through faith. Unless we even be super proud that we came up with faith, Paul says, hey, guess what? Even that is a gift from God. You didn't even believe on your own. I gave you the gift of faith. And verse 10 shows us one last thing about grace. And that last thing is simply this. Grace restores us. Grace restores us to what we were made to be. See, friends, we were made to walk in good works. We were made to live according to God's plan for his creation. And that's why Paul reminds us That we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. What grace does, what the grace of the gospel does, is it restores us to that purpose. 
Grace does not mean we are saved from the need to do good works. What grace does and what grace means is that we are saved for the purpose of doing good works. Well, what are the good works that God is calling us to do? I think a lot of times we read this passage, we read this idea that we are called to good works, and we think that means big stuff. Like we're supposed to do major things and, and change the world for Jesus. But in reality, folks, I think God is calling us to ordinary faithfulness. God is calling us less to change the world and more to do the dishes. God is calling us to be faithful in the small things he has given us to do. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were given three tasks. They were called to love and serve God. They were called to love and serve one another. And they were called to love and serve the place that God had given them. And friends, that's what grace restores us to. We are called to love and serve our God. We are called to love and serve the people that God has put around us. We don't have to go find the right kind of people to love and serve. If God has put someone around you, you are called to love and serve them. That is one of the things that grace is calling you to do this morning. Love the people around you. Love your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends, your, the people you encounter randomly in the grocery store. The people you drive next to on I-66 are some of the people God has called you to love and to serve. Love the place that God has given you. God has called us to love our communities and to seek the flourishing and the goodness of our community. And friends, that means we have to care. We have to notice things. We need to see who the marginalized are in our community and love them. We need to love the businesses and the schools and the governing authorities and, and everything that contributes to the well-being and the flourishing of our place is something grace is calling us to care about. We are called to love and serve our place. Friends, if sin is an addiction to something that will ultimately kill us, grace is a gift that changes everything about us. And like I started the service by saying, there is no one who is so bad. They are beyond the reach of God's grace. And there is no one here that is so good, they are not in constant need of that same grace. Grace is the gift that changes everything about us. And so in closing, I want to leave you with another question, a question to reflect on, a question to think about, a question to help this sermon and this text percolate in your hearts and minds. And that's simply this, what ordinary and small good work has God's grace saved you to this week? What ordinary and small good work has God's grace saved you to this week? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you 
that your grace is a gift that changes everything about us. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have loved us. You have brought us to life. You have honored us. And even now you are restoring us to what we were made to be. Father, teach us to walk in good works, to live the life that you have called us to live, to live the life that you created us to live. And Lord, in that, let us flourish. Lord, we pray even now as we come to your table that you will be at work in us and that you would use this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and by your spirit, use them to anchor us more and more in your grace. Transform us by your love. We pray in Christ's name, amen.